Our scripture this morning comes from the 8th chapter of the book of Acts, verses 26 through 40. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who is in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself in Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is God's word. Please be seated. Thanks. Well, good morning. It's wonderful to hear God's word read in that, in that, uh, in that fashion. And uh, great to hear you all sing. Welcome back, college students, those of you who are returning from break. Um, I am, yes, it is true, wearing a big pair of glasses. Let's get that out on the table. Um, These are my backup pair. So what happened, I was preaching last night at our other campus, the South Whedon campus. And you know, sometimes when I preach, I take my glasses off to sort of, you know, gesticulate. And... um, and so I was doing that, and I was holding them. I was making some particular point, and I just broke them in my hand. <laughs> Hence, now I'm looking at you through the bottom of a pair of Coke bottles or something like that. Um, so, please, you know, after I preach this sermon on the gospel and racism, think about something else other than what pair of glasses I was wearing. That would be really encouraging for the heart of this preacher. So that's the theme, uh, racism and the gospel. Now... I want you all, as it were, to relax. We talked about this theme a little bit uh, in uh, the staff meetings and during this week. And one of the things that I'm told is that when this uh, theme comes up, people begin to kind of go like this. Um, You know, uh, is it going to be a guilt trip? No. So just relax. We're going to study the Bible. It will be okay. Um, Now, having said that, 
we do need, as it were, to think a little outside that proverbial box. You know the box that everyone wants you to think outside of and you're not quite sure where that box is or whether you can locate it anymore. But we do need to be able to think a little bit outside uh, that proverbial box. Here's why. Racism, um, bigotry, prejudice, it's uh, a bit like, um, well, here's the illustration. It's a bit like having spinach on your teeth. Really easy for someone else to spot. Um, Pretty hard for you to notice yourself. And so uh, your bigotry might not be my bigotry and might not be their bigotry. By the way, I'm not going to be talking about the kind of obvious bigotry that, you know, I guess we're we're all against. That would be an easy way to preach this kind of sermon, to say, you know, there are people out there and aren't they horrible. We've got to go a little bit deeper uh, than, than that. When I've done a lot of research on this over the years, and when you read um, what people are saying, even in, even in church circles sometimes about this kind of thing, you find all sorts of rationalization, uh, the white man's burden, that kind of thing. Now, Wheaton actually, historically, has a pretty good tradition here. I don't know how widely known that is anymore, but during the slavery time, Wheaton was part of what was then known as the underground. And so it had this, uh, it was providing rescue for slaves and all the rest. That, That doesn't really let us off the hook. And in fact, from a global perspective, You know, when you say racism in America, you always think black and white. But from a global perspective, that's not always the category. It can be Arab and Jew. In some parts of Europe, it can be um, different religious groups, apparently, but actually really behind that is racial groups, but they all look white. Um. Now, I've done, as I say, I've done a lot of reading on this. I've done a lot of thinking on this. I've engaged with Christian leaders on this from different cultures and races. Obviously, in case you hadn't noticed, I am white. Um, that, that doesn't mean I haven't experienced bigotry, by the way. I really have. Um, but, but that said, well, I remember we lived for a while on the East Coast in America, and we lived in the hood tell you a lot of stories about that. And um, as I was, um, you know, we were living there, I used to ride my bicycle through the hood wearing a bow tie. And, uh, you know, and was, we had a good time there. I remember, I really did. I, I remember thinking as I was walking one time uh, down a, near a particular street and I, looking around at the folk there and just, uh, just engaging and just thinking... If I had been born here, how would I ever get out? And I just didn't have a good answer to that question. Uh, One um, good book that I've read on this is by someone called Michelle Alexander. As far as I know, she's not a Christian author, okay? Um, So I'm not endorsing this. It's just an interesting book because it's called The New Jim Crow, really shows one perspective on all the systemic structures, at least from one point of view. 
Now, all of that is really preliminary to set the stage to help us to think outside our box and, um, you know, let's reason together from the Scriptures. So we're looking at Acts 8, this passage here. Acts 8 is often preached in basically two uh, different ways. It's either an evangelistic sermon, you know, repent and be baptized like the Ethiopian eunuch, or else it's um, a sort of how-to-do evangelism sermon. And uh, there certainly are those kind of good applications here. But really at the core, at the heart, the center of what Luke is doing is a little more in this point in his story in the book of Acts. What does it take for the gospel to triumph over racism or bigotry? Or prejudice. Now that's more what Luke is showing us here in his story. He has three things that uh, he shows us that it's necessary to happen. First of all, you've got to put the boundaries in the right place. You see, there are boundaries. Uh, liberal thinking, relativistic thinking, even in theology. We want to just say there are no boundaries at all. That's what we need to advance. No boundaries. But if there are no boundaries, then there's no need for anyone to be saved, and in that case, there's no gospel, and you just have universalism. But on the other hand, if you put the boundaries in the wrong place, you can get racism. So first putting the boundaries in the right place. Then you have here a more emotional, a personal thing, a supernatural encounter thing, which is really understanding the heart of God. God's heart for the excluded is revealed here supernaturally. The angel says this, the spirit says this, God intervenes. And for us to be like Philip here in this story, we have to understand the heart of God for the excluded. But then finally, there's a key aspect, which is often overlooked, which is really about what theologians call eschatology. It's a technical word, uh, but about where we are in the plan of the history of uh, God's plan of redemption. What, what Luke is saying here is you've got to tell the time right in terms of the history of redemption. We've got to know where we are in God's redemptive plan. So we're obviously not in heaven yet, um, but what parts of the kingdom of God that has come and Jesus is returning. What parts are for now and what parts are for then? You see, one way uh, at least to look at racism in, uh, when it appears in religious circles, in church circles, is that it is really an under-realized eschatology. That is very, very few people in sort of educated, sophisticated, upper-middle-class church circles, very few people then will want to say, you know, in heaven, they're not going to be all racist. So people, you know, everyone thinks that within these kind of circles. But, but what they want to say is unrealistic now. And Luke's saying, no, it's not. You're telling the time wrong on God's history of redemption. So that's where we're going uh, this morning, putting the boundaries in the right place, understanding the heart of God, and telling the time right. Now, when we think about, when we think about putting the boundaries in the right place, we've got to avoid two common mistakes, either everyone or no one, either racism or universalism. And Luke is saying there's a better third way. I want you to see how he does it. Well-known story, this Ethiopian high uh, official um, Ethiopian, in other words, he's a black African. 
Ethiopia meant then uh, uh, really the empire, a big kingdom to the south of Egypt, a huge African empire, went on for thousands of years, uh, went through a very rich trading time with Rome. And this official is the treasurer. He's the head of the Federal Reserve, the bank of uh, this Ethiopia. He's an important man. He's not a Jew. He's a God-fearer. He's come back from the temple worship, and he's disappointed. Because, you see, at the time, those who were not either proselytes or Jews by birth um, were excluded from intimate worship. They were kept to special extra places. There were signs barring them from going where the Jews went. This is actually the kind of thing that Jesus had said was so wrong about the temple worship when he discovered it. Now, there were some barriers put in place in the Old Testament, in Leviticus and all that. But what they had done since then is they turned those things which were emphasizing God's holiness in order to be an attraction to all nations, as God promised Abraham to be a light to all nations. They made them high walls. And so when Jesus turns up at the temple, he cleans out the temple. He th- remember, he throws out the money changers. Not really about money. What that's about is people using the need for those who come from other nations to change money to be able to buy sacrificial um, elements for worship using temple money, charging a lot for that interchange, and so making it really hard. It's a sort of tax on the nations coming to God. And so what Jesus says is, look, my Father's house is a house of prayer for all nations. Right? Now, this Ethiopian had just come back and he experienced all that exclusion. He wanted to find God. No one would tell him about God. He's, left, he's got the Bible on his lap. He cares. He treasures it. This treasurer treasures the Bible. But he has no one to explain to him what it means. No rabbi has told him. He's been barred from the schools, from the churches. Been signs saying this far, but you're not allowed further in. Colored, not wanted, if you like. But, see, I, as soon as we put it in that sort of con- those kind of contemporary terms, actually what's on this mind is not color. I, I, color wasn't as big a deal then in ancient times as it is in contemporary America for all sorts of reasons. And what's on his mind is exclusion, but exclusion because he was a eunuch. So Luke emphasizes this over and over again. He's an official but he's also a eunuch, which now a eunuch could also be a term sort of synonymous with being a high official. But Luke makes it clear that this is literal here because over and over again he says eunuch four times. Verse 27, verse 34, verse 38, verse 39, eunuch, eunuch. So this man cannot be richly pure. It's a barrier for him that must have seemed it could never be removed. And so just to be blunt, he had been emasculated, Literally. And you can see this in the uh, scripture passage he's reflecting on. It's beautiful. He's reading um, Isaiah 53. Now listen to it from the point of view of a eunuch. Led to the slaughter. Before the shearer. Humiliation. Who can describe his generation? Where are his children going to come from? His life taken from him there'll be no his seed is taken from the earth and so he's resonating in this brutal treatment that he must have felt and then actually Isaiah 53 carries on to Isaiah 56 whenever you see a passage quoted in the New Testament from the Old Testament you should look up the context there Isaiah 56 it gets really explicit I'll just quote it for you let not the eunuch say behold I am a dry tree 
to the eunuchs, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. So here's this eunuch, he feels cut off. And he's reading about a passage of someone who was cut off. And is there hope for him? Now you see, we put the boundary in the wrong place. Now look, some of you will want to say the way to bring about unity in this regard in our society is to remove all boundaries. But if you do that, here's what's going to happen. You're going to create a cartoon of God. See, they had it right. There is a boundary. God is holy. A cartoon figure of God is not really one you're going to worship. Just a sort of superhero. Lots of power, but not real. This God is real. He's loving, but he's also holy. And if you just remove all the boundaries, what you're really saying is God is just, he's not real. It's just a cartoon. But then if you put the boundaries in the wrong place, well, one way of doing that is you become a racist. Put the boundaries in the right place. Then we have, second, understanding the heart of God. This is another huge emphasis for Luke here, and you've really got to span back, you've got to get a wide-angle lens on this passage in the context. So Acts is Luke's second volume of a two-volume account of Christian origins, and in this whole story, he's trying to show how God has fulfilled his purposes to the church. God's heart is being fulfilled. And now in this second volume, he's begun by explaining about uh, these uh, uh, Jerusalem uh, church, this New Testament Jerusalem church. They'd appointed Greek-speaking Jews as deacons in the church. There'd been a squabble between one group and another. And so the apostles wisely appointed leaders of the Greek-speaking Jews to tend to the needs of that community. And so one of those leaders, a man called Stephen, just been martyred. Persecution breaks out. It's particularly targeted at the Greek-speaking Jews. They leave. We know from later in Acts, it's just the Hebrew-speaking Jews left, so the Greek-speaking Jews have to leave. They've been looked at, they're looked down upon by Hebrew-speaking Jews. You know, what do you mean? You don't know Hebrew? You know, so they're, they're targeted. They have to flee. One of their leaders is a man called Philip. What does he do? Well, he goes to Samaria. Another excluded group. Long, long history of tension between Samaritans and Jews for all sorts of reasons. Philip goes there and says, look, the Messiah has come, so you are welcome. And revival breaks out. Now, by the way, do you see how often God uses those who think they're excluded to reach other people who feel excluded? If you're sitting here uh, this morning, perhaps you've just come along to the church for this sermon, (laughs) and you're thinking, you know, I don't really belong here. In all likelihood, God is calling you to be a landing place for other people like you. God very often uses those who feel excluded to reach out to the excluded, as he did with Philip, so expressing the heart of God. 
See, God himself steps in. The angel, the spirit, picks Philip up. The angel tells him. It's like the story of Elijah in the Old Testament. Luke is saying there's this huge battle against idol worship. God has a heart to break down some barriers now between Hebrew-speaking Jew and Greek-speaking Jew. Next circle out. Between Greek-speaking Jew and Samaritan. Next circle out. Between Greek-speaking Jew and black African eunuch. This is God's heart. If you really get God's heart for the excluded... If you really get that, then you'll never be able to say about someone from a different race from you, you know, someone gets in trouble, you'll never be able to say, look, they deserved it. Would you say that about someone from your own race? You know, maybe, maybe there was a crime committed, but, you know, don't we all, don't we all deserve it? And God's, what is God's heart for the excluded? On the other hand, it works both ways here. If you feel like you're a victim, you've got to have compassion on the powerful. He says, that's a strange idea. The powerful don't need compassion, do they? Oh, yes, they do. The Bible talks a lot about respecting those over us, not making their life difficult, submitting to those in authority. Look, today, if you want to get media attention, all you need to do is play the victim card. You accuse someone of something, someone in authority. Because we're so wired today to be suspicious of authority, you can destroy that person's life. But God has a heart for a Philip too. He's the preacher here in this passage, but he'd been excluded as well. You know, one of the unique things about being a pastor is you get to work with very powerful people as well as the completely marginalized And you will be surprised by how hard it is for a powerful person, especially a rich person, to ever feel welcome. Very rarely will people tell the unvarnished truth to rich people. But then again, it's hard to hear the story of the person who's been taken advantage of because the very fact they've been taken advantage of silences their discourse. And then there's a kind of vicious cycle where everyone is trying to appear more like a victim than the other person. And then there's God's heart. See, what Luke is saying here is this is is like Elijah. Philip is acting a bit like Elijah. There's an idol. There's an idea out there that unity can only come from getting rid of all power agendas. Well, sometimes power agendas do need to be exposed. But then we can get bigoted about the bigots, right? God has a heart for the older brother as well as the prodigal son. For Philip, for Paul, for this black African eunuch. In the arms of the Father, heart of God, there is room for all nations. That's not just being sentimental. Let me show you that. Um, I I told this story on on, on Saturday night. I think this is when I broke my glasses, by the way. Look, they've come off my hand um, already. And I told it at 8 o'clock. And this is one of these stories that I've run through a number of different friends from... um, 
Christian leaders from different uh, denominations, races, that kind of thing. It's a really interesting, it's a good, it illustrates the point. Um, there was a, a, black, a young black African man in our congregation, about 23, he got cancer, and very suddenly he died. And we, we couldn't quite figure out what was God's plan in this. I mean, he had a lot of potential, he was a leader, he was an evangelist, and then he, he died. And so I'm asked to do his funeral, and I do the funeral kind of in his home church. It's a, it's a um, you know, so I get up to preach, and the place is packed. Uh, by the way, if you want a lot of people at your funeral, all you need to do is die young. And um, so it's packed, right? And I think I'm the only white person there, you know, and I'm preaching. So I look out, and you can look in their eyes, and they're all sort of thinking, I wonder what's going to happen here, right? And I've got my little stack of notes, you know, like a good white preacher. And I start to preach, and this wonderful uh, older African-American lady, as I'm starting to preach, and I'm getting into a bit of a rhythm, suddenly I, she's on the organ, and I hear this noise. I said, oh, my goodness, you know, what's going on? And I, and I, and I looked down at my notes and I think, well, this, forget this. I'm just going to preach, you know. And it's great. I was preaching on Jesus wept. By the way, if you've never preached in that kind of context and you are a preacher, I'd encourage you to do it. There's nothing better. You preach there and you come back and preach in Anglo church and you wonder whether everyone's even alive. <laughs> like, you know, wake up. I mean, my goodness. You know, there's, there's just not just me here. We're here, you know. Um, so do that and then at the end of the funeral uh, the, the casket is let out and the mother very godly woman she's leading the funeral out of the church and she is saying loudly over and over again praise you Jesus you think what divides us is more important? I mean, really? Than the heart of God for that man, now in glory for that mother? Understanding the heart of God. Thirdly and finally, you've got to tell the time right. Some ways this is the most important and it's going to, it's going to come to closure now. Telling the time right. Um, relativistic theological liberalism will not do it. All that will happen is we'll get judgmental about those we think are being judgmental. We'll get ideological about those we think have ideology. We'll get bigoted about those we think are bigots. It's a vicious cycle. So the answer is Christ. We're going to see how that is in this passage. And you say, well, how? How is that the case? What about the church's record here? And then someone like me, who's a preacher, is going to mention William Wilberforce, you know, great Christian leader who led the way to defeat slavery. But then you're going to say, okay, but how about other Christian leaders? Isn't the church's record here a little mixed? You know, one of my great heroes is Jonathan Edwards. But um, some years ago, there was a little scrap of a manuscript was discovered in Edwards's handwriting which seems to suggest he was defending slavery. Now, we've known for a long time that he had slaves, 
Uh, we also know that uh, black Americans were full communion members in his church, but still, uh, to be fair to Edwards, you know, a child of his time, and also his son, Jonathan Edwards Jr., was at the forefront of defeating slavery. So you could argue that in Edwards' theology was incubated the anti-slavery movement, and there's some truth to that, but still, I mean, you have to say... You have to say Edwards got this wrong. But why? He didn't tell the time right. Basically, his argument in that little scrap of paper is, look, slavery is bad. I mean, he knew that. But there's nothing we can do about it right now. It's unrealistic. At some level, it's easy, you know, you can appreciate, you, even today, you look at the problems of the world, you look at poverty, injustice, it's easy to get into a sort of someone else's problem mode, right? You see, that isn't telling the time right. Contrast that with Wilberforce. Wilberforce campaigned against and ended, at least then, that kind of slavery because he refused to say, this is only for later. He said, we have to do something about it. And that's what Luke is saying here. This particular issue, this is now. Now, you can, get, you can get an over-realized eschatology. That is, you can think that everything that's going to happen in heaven is going to happen here. And there are people who do that as well. They think that no one's going to suffer anymore. There will be no more crying and everyone will get healed if you just have enough faith. But that not, that's not true. There will be tears here. But this particular barrier has been broken This is not something we have to do. It has been broken down. We need to recognize it. What's that barrier? That barrier is between Jew and Gentile. That's the the biblical barrier between Jew and all nations. And by that token, we do have Jewish believers in our congregation, of course. But by that token, most of us here are all naturally before Christ came, kind of on the outside. We're all together as Gentiles, not Jews. We were all on the outside. And that barrier has been broken. It's not future. It's now. See, that's what they're wrestling with throughout Acts. You know, should we go out to Samaria now? Yes. <laughs> should we reach out to African Ethiopian eunuchs now? Yes. Should we eat pork with Roman centurions now? Yes. Should we take the Gospels of the Gentiles now? And Luke is saying, yes, yes, yes. This is all now. It's not, this is not for heaven. Christ has come. He's broken down that barrier. You see, what happens to a lot of folk in church circles who otherwise are theologically very orthodox and try and do their best and love people and all that sort of thing, and they appear racist, what happens is they're telling the time wrong. They say, well, I know, you know, that's going to happen in heaven, but not now. It's too complicated now. That's wrong. It's now. Luke is saying that preaching the gospel, our great phrase of the church, proclaiming the gospel, preaching the gospel means a new embrace. In fact, I love how Luke uh, tells that and makes that point. Look at Isaiah 53 here again in the passage. Notice how he exposes it, Philip. If you go to theological school, theological education, you'll really enjoy 
how Philip answers uh, the eunuch's sort of classic question about Isaiah 53, he cuts through about 3,000 hours of seminary conversation and just says, it's all about Jesus. And so then the eunuch wants to get baptized. Now look, look, and he is baptized. He says, look, that barrier is broken down now. Circumcision was circumcision. Circumcision is an ethnic symbol, right? Don't need a graphic, but it's an ethnic symbol. But now it's baptism, which is a symbol of the gospel going to all nations. Even you, Ethiopian eunuch, right? And so there's Philip. He's kind of like Elijah. It's very much like Elijah, this story. Go back and read Elijah. The spirit picks him up, dumps him someone else. He finds himself at Azotos. You know, oh, here I am. Wouldn't that be interesting if I was preaching? I was like, oh, my goodness, I'm somewhere else. Elijah. Now, who, what's, who's Elijah about in the Bible? Notice how the story says, this is a desert place. Who else baptized in the desert? Do you remember? John the Baptist. The Elijah. The fulfillment of the Elijah. Proclaiming. Making straight the way for the Lord in the desert. One who will come and the Spirit will come. There was another person, wasn't there, who said, yeah, no, I do need to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. You say, look, where's Jesus in this text? I'll tell you where Jesus is. He's the African eunuch. Your brother, your sister, when you see the face of Christ in his eyes, your embrace. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for uh, Philip, the excluded one who reached out to the excluded. We pray, Lord, that we would submit to those in authority and have compassion on the powerful as well as the weak. We pray, Lord, that uh, if we feel here this morning on the outside, that we will take that as a message from you that we have a ministry of being a landing place for others like us here. We pray, Lord, that if we wrestle with loving those different from us, that in Christ you would help us to see in their face the face of Jesus. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.